when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Keir Starmer received a much-needed boost to his leadership this week as Labour beat expectations and won the Batley and Spen by-election in West Yorkshire. I do hereby declare that Kim Michelle Leadbeater is duly elected. The focus now is catching up on a bit of sleep, maybe having a few glasses of fizz, and then there's lots to do. And I think the campaign has highlighted that there's lots to do. I'm absolutely delighted that the people of Batley and Spen have rejected division and they've voted for hope. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining how Labour managed to cling on in Batley and Spen and return Kim Leadbeater as its new MP. Was it expectations management, good ground campaigning, or was it Matt Hancock to blame? Political editor George Parker will discuss, along with our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard. And later, we'll be looking at how the new Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, will differ from his predecessor, Matt Hancock, on fixing coronavirus. Will he be more eager to lift restrictions and how does he intend to deal with the social care problems? Health editor Sarah Dever will discuss along with chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley. But George and Jim, welcome back. Hi, Seb. Hi, Seb. So this weekend, obviously, very big thing coming up, which is the England football game. And I think out of the three of us, I'm probably the least football-minded out of all of you. But when England is playing, it's always very hard to not get swept up in the national mood. And I end up watching the last match with the glorious triumph against Germany, sitting outside a bar in Soho, watching it on an iPhone because everywhere was absolutely packed out. So <laughs> I'm hoping something a bit less tragic this time. What about you, George? Well, Seb, I'm hoping to watch it uh, at a very nice pub on the waterfront in Devon called The Swan um, in Limpstone. So that's my that's my dream pub for watching the game. And uh, I know the locals down there are big football fans and uh, watch, the, watch the last Scotland game down there as well. So looking forward to that. And what about you, Jim? Are you in some nice West London pub? So I loved the Tuesday game. It was really exciting at the end, wasn't it? But I've got a diary clash. I'm locked in months ago to visiting the circus with some of the younger Picards. So much to my private horror, um, I'm not going to be able to watch the game. <laughs> Well, it's a good job there's no by-elections on that night as well, Jim, otherwise you would be very vexed in your diary, which will take us on to the main topic of the week. So the Batley and Spen by-election has been one of the grimmest and nastiest campaigns in British politics for quite some years. Prompted by the election of its former MP Tracy Brabin as the new mayor of West Yorkshire, the Conservatives had hoped to take the seat, particularly with the divisive presence of left-wing agitator George Galloway. But by a mere 323 votes, Labour clung on. It selected an excellent campaigner in Kim Ledbetter, who had very close emotional ties to the seat that was once represented by her sister, Joe Cox. 
She told the BBC on Friday that she hoped to live up to her sister's legacy. This was a hugely emotional decision for me to put myself forward and it's a, a hugely emotional victory. Um, I was thinking very much about her children and the fact that I can't wait to see them and give them the biggest hug ever. Sadly, like lots of people, we haven't seen enough of each other during the last um, year or so. Um, you know, but if I can be half the MP that Joe was, then that'll be pretty good going. So, Jim, you and I have both been up to Batley and spent, and it was a very tightly fought campaign, and neither party was particularly assured what was going to happen. But it does seem in the last week the race tightened because I think earlier in the campaign, Labour did feel it was in trouble. What's your thoughts on how the party managed to cling on? It was a surprise to a lot of Labour senior personnel that they did manage to pull us out of the bag. Um, you know, all of us have been talking to people in the shadow cabinet in recent days. And there was a sort of massive gloom hanging over everyone in terms of their expectations. And on paper, it looked like a, a really difficult one for Labour for various reasons, one of which was you had George Galloway deliberately seeking to undermine Keir Starmer's leadership by especially targeting Muslim voters, especially Muslim Labour voters in the seat. And also the kind of UKIP, Brexity, sort of right-wing anti-EU vote, which was formerly in the hands of a splinter party called the Heavy Woolen District people. There were 6,000 votes for them in the last election, and there was a widespread presumption that that would go to the Tories. And in the end, Labour seems to have held off just by getting the vote out, because by-elections are quite weird. It's all about turnout. The turnout's generally a lot lower than you get in the general election. And they just inched it by this 300-odd votes. And the good thing for Kim Ledbetter and for the Labour Party is that victory is a victory. And even though it could have quite easily gone the other way, they've managed to get this, this inverted commas, great victory out of it. I think they were very lucky that the Green Party candidate withdrew for various reasons and they got six or 700 votes last time. And I think they were also quite fortunate that the Lib Dem vote, which wasn't very big, but it fell by over a thousand votes. And you know, when you're talking about these tiny margins, that kind of thing can make a really big difference. Because, George, a lot of this is about momentum, really, and following the Hartlepool by-election where the Tories pulled off a very big victory, attention quickly focused on Batley and Spen. And as, you know, people at Conservative HQ have been saying for a long time in private and in public, it's a very different sort of seat. It's got a much bigger ethnic minority community, around 20% compared to Hartlepool, which I think was overwhelmingly white working class. So on paper, in some respect, it was not an easy seat for the Tories to win. But the fact that they held it for a long period up to 1997, the fact that it's a lot of those seats in West Yorkshire went Tory for the first time at the 2019 election. I think the Conservative Party let expectations get ahead of them too much. And the fact Boris Johnson went there three times, yes, they thought they really could take it. Well, I remember after the Hartlepool uh, by-election victory for the Conservatives, you'll remember there was a giant inflatable Boris Johnson on the quayside there. And um, I think Boris Johnson was asked what they were going to do with the inflatable Boris Johnson, and someone on the back bench shouted out, we're taking it down to Batley and Spen. And I don't think there was any doubt in the minds of Conservative MPs that they would win that by-election, having won in Hartlepool, having done so well in the northern seats in the uh, local elections in May, that uh, they would move down there and, and seize victory. And as you mentioned, it had been previously a Conservative seat. Some people said it wasn't even really a typical Red Wall seat at all. And so the suggestion was it was there for the taking plus the arrival of George Galloway on the scene and dividing the Labour vote, that just raised people's expectations. I think you're probably right, Seb, that they did allow expectations to run ahead of themselves. Although I don't think that was all that surprising. You look at the bookmakers' odds, I think the Tories were 6-1 to one on to win the seat 
everybody assumed the Conservatives would win it. So as Jim mentioned, it's a fine margin, but it's hugely significant in terms of the dynamics of, of British politics. You probably want to get onto this in a minute, but I mean, it, in a way, it sort of halts the Tory bandwagon in the north, but also it gives Keir Starmer invaluable breathing space, gets him into the safety of the summer break, allows him to regroup, and then hopefully, from his point of view, come up with a much more compelling vision of what he wants the country to look like at the Labour conference in the autumn. And just the last thought on the campaign itself, Jim, that some of the Tories I've spoken to on Friday, they cited two pretty clear reasons for why Labour managed to just about edge it. The first was the fact that it has been a very nasty campaign. And we saw that George Galloway, the veteran left wing agitator, stood there with the explicit aim of trying to oust Keir Starmer. But we've seen pictures of nasty confrontations on the street um, as Peter Mandelson talked to the BBC. It's a victory, frankly, against the politics a very ugly division represented by George Galloway and his campaign's attempts to create, frankly, what amounted to a, a communal grievance amongst Muslim voters and, and to unleash racial and homophobic forces in the constituency that were really very unpleasant uh, to see. So I think, Jim, you had the fact that this nasty campaigning saw a lot of soft conservative voters either staying at home or rallying around Kim Leadbeater thinking, hang on a minute, she's clearly a very decent campaigner. This is the kind of person we want to represent us. And of course, the second element of that is Matt Hancock, the whole row about him resigning as health secretary, which we'll talk about later in the podcast, did seem to cut through. And I think the Tory party chairman, Amanda Milling, admitted that um, on Friday morning. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to disaggregate what precise factors led to, to a by-election victory. And um, I mean, I was up there at the back end of, of last week. So I was there before two things happened. So firstly, as you said, the intimidation of Kim Ledbetter seemed to get worse. There's that clip of her you know, basically retreating from a young man shouting at her in the street and nobody sort of stepping in to, to help her. And also the Matt Hancock scandal. You know, when, when we talked to people uh, over the phone earlier this week, they were saying that that had, was coming from the doorsteps and that a lot of swing voters were unhappy about what Matt Hancock had done, the hypocrisy of what he'd done as one of the people setting the rules and the fact that Boris Johnson had originally tried to, to stand behind him. So those were all factors. I think also at the end of the day, you know, Ryan Stevenson, when I went up there, he was the Conservative candidate. We didn't see him. You know, we had a coffee with Amanda Milling, who's the Conservative co-chair. But Ryan Stevenson was kind of almost in, invisible there. And George Galloway had branded him the Scarlet Pimpernel because no one sort of knew much about him. No one was really talking about him. I think they were sort of hoping that the Boris Johnson effect would be enough to get them through. And, you know, Kim Ledbetter, we'll, we'll never know how much um, it was a factor, the fact that not only was she someone who seems like a decent person, very much a local person who could name every single village in the constituency, and we, we'll never know whether there was some sympathy factor there and memories of Joe Cox, who was perceived to be a good local MP, whether that made the difference or not. Well, so one thing to, to add on that is that for a long time, Keir Starmer has sort of argued that the Labour Party was doing badly in these kinds of elections because of the vaccine bounce. And I just wonder whether we're starting to see the, the vaccine effect and the coronavirus effect starting to fade slightly. You know, first of all, with the, the um, Cheshire and Ambition by-election, of course, which the Tories lost heavily to the Liberal Democrats, and now with Batley and Spen, whether we're just starting to see a bit more of a return to politics as normal and the euphoria around the vaccine coming in and people starting to see their lives returning to normal, maybe that's just starting to fade a bit. 
I'd agree with that, George. And I think that up until now, there's been a sense that Boris Johnson has just defied political gravity in many respects. You know, there's a kind of running joke on Twitter that every time there's bad news about government, the Conservatives go up by about five points in the opinion polls. And I think that what this by-election shows is that, you know, political gravity hasn't entirely changed. And when it comes to the traditional dynamics, they are still there. But talking of those dynamics, Jim, the key fact, of course, of all this is it's very good news for Keir Starmer that in the run-up to this by-election, we've had a series of stories about how he was going to be challenged for the leadership by the left, by his deputy, Angela Rayner, and he's brought himself some breathing room. Yeah. I mean, the, the other point I would just make in, in macro terms is we have to remember that by-elections, you know, they're good for party morale and they shift the dial in terms of how people are feeling, but they really are not necessarily accurate representations of what's going on at a national level. And you know, the turnout fairly low, I think it was 47%. And if you look at how many actual votes Kim Ledbetter got, it was 13,296. Whereas Tracy Braben in 2017 got 29,844 votes, you know, twice as many people voted for Labour in a general election. And indeed, the Tory candidate back then got nearly twice as many. So you're, you're looking at a, a different representative of the, the, the local voters. It's a, it's a different a selection of the electorate is, I guess, the people who are more motivated. And so different things can happen in general elections. But in terms of Labour internal politics, I mean, to pick you up slightly there, said that none of these reports actually said that Angela Rayner was definitely going to stand against Keir Starmer or trigger a leadership election. There were sort of rumours that people might do. And those rumours were sort of denied or half denied. And it was always the case that what the left have said for a few months was, you know, we'll give Keir a little bit more time if he loses in Batley and Spen, you know, that's where things could kick off. But what the hard left, the kind of Corbynistas, if you like, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, the exiled former leader, what they always knew was that in order to precipitate a leadership contest, you needed 40 hostile Labour MPs all to sign the same motion. And they knew they didn't have the numbers on their own. And therefore, when people were talking about would Angela Rayner who was definitely very unhappy with Keir Starmer after the aftermath of the Hartley Bull by-election where he tries to demote her and didn't quite manage it. You know, what is true is that she is unhappy, but there was a bit of wishful thinking from the hard left that she would be the person who would take him out and precipitate a leadership contest where they could then put forward one of their own. So, you know, that has now gone quiet and will be quiet, as George said, for quite a few months. He's got a lot of breathing space, at least a conference season. And I suppose he has a bit of space in which to you know, set out more policy, try and get some more airtime, try and get across to the public who still are not quite sure who he is and what he stands for. And it feels like, George, that this could mark a moment where maybe if we are past the worst of the coronavirus pandemic, we do start to return to something nearing uh, the normal political dynamics, because we've obviously got party conferences coming up in September, where both parties are eager to do big in-person gatherings and signal things are back to normal. And the criticism for Labour has always been that Keir Starmer has not offered an active reason to back the party anymore. And I think what, that's what he's now got to set out because 
in many ways, whatever reason that Kim Ledbetter won, you know, it was not necessarily because there was a big, bold reason to vote for Labour. I think she obviously was a very compelling local candidate. There were reasons to not vote for the Conservatives and reasons to not vote for George Galloway. But Starmer now has to turn his attention to that. He's had a big reset of his private office team and they will obviously be delighted by this. But that's going to be the question now. What is the narrative he can put forward to try and win these places back? Because I guess Battling Spence shows that he can do it. And that obviously, as we always say on this podcast, nothing is really permanent in politics. Well, to show you can win something is important, even if you just scrape over the line in very unusual circumstances. So I mean, that's given him a bit of a breathing space, as Jim said. But yeah, I mean, Kim Ledbetter was absolutely crystal clear. She fought that campaign on local issues. I mean, she could hardly have done anything other because it's very hard to know exactly what the Labour Party stands for at the moment. That's not just me saying it. But anybody who speaks to a member of the shadow cabinet will hear that as well. What does Keir Starmer stand for? What's his guiding star? What are his principles? What sort of Britain does Keir Starmer want to build? Frankly, nobody knows. And if you if you can't persuade your own shadow cabinet you've got a vision, then you've got a big problem convincing the country. So the clock is ticking for Keir Starmer. This has bought him some time, but he really needs to get out there at the party conference and come up with a vision of what he wants. You know, I've always been a strong believer that, you know, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, that old cliche. And I think that's true, that there's a certain amount of advantage that will accrue to Keir Starmer if he can cling on in there from just being the safe, boring prime minister in waiting when the country tires of Boris Johnson's slightly more chaotic and uh, flamboyant style of leadership. But he does need to set out a vision. And that's going to be the big question, I think, for the Labour Party in the next two or three months going into that party conference. What does he do? And you heard Peter Mandelson on the radio immediately after the by-election result, basically implying that Keir Starmer should go after the hard left, who Mandelson accused of conspiring in some way with George Galloway in that um, in that by-election. The old Tony Blair playbook, if you like, sort of define yourself against your opponents in the party. But there is a real sense, I think, when you, you report Labour, that Keir Starmer's always looking over his shoulder, wondering what, he's almost scared of his own party. So he needs to show more courage, I think, in taking on the implacable parts of the party. And he needs to set out a vision of a sort of modern centre-left alternative, which is, you know, frankly, a task which is defying a lots of centre-left leaders across Europe, not just in Britain, but he's got to get to work with it straight away. Indeed. And finally, Jim, like one of the things that I'm always struck by with with conversations I have with senior people in the Tory parties, they all think that quite a big Keir Starmer bounce at some point may or will come. And that's because obviously he's done a lot in terms of dealing with the issues of why people wouldn't vote for Labour under Corbyn. He looks and sounds prime ministerial. And if we do enter a big crisis, you know, whether it's financial or political, he will look like a safe pair of hands. So again, it's hard to predict, but I could definitely see that happening too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all, all political pundits have the tendency, I think, to, you know, sort of bask in whatever things just, just happened and, and sort of forget that there's this perpetual ebb and flow in the political world. And it was only last Christmas that Labour had edged ahead in the polls and that Keir Starmer's personal poll ratings were, I think, higher than Boris Johnson on, on several factors. So he's shown that he can relatively, you know, ri- rise above Boris Johnson's Conservative Party uh, and that the, the sort of slump he's had since then doesn't necessarily have to be permanent. One thing I would sl- take slight issue with George's suggestion, you know, quoting Peter Manson on the radio, saying that you know, maybe the way to define, that the thing he needs to do is sort of define himself against the hard left and, and do what Tony Blair did a generation ago. I think in a way, what we've seen with Keir Starmer is like where he has been most decisive and has shown initiative has been waging war 
on the left wing of his party. I mean, let's not forget that the former leader has been cast out of the Labour Party. And, you know, the, the left have been, it's been made them pretty clear. There's basically none of them in the shadow cabinet. They have been more or less routed. But what Keir Starmer is not doing is he's not demonstrating that clearness of vision and energy that he's he's taken towards internal Labour politics. He's not taken that towards showing the country and the voting public what a Keir Starmer government would look like. And I, I think in some ways that might be what the voters would be more interested in than, than internal squabbles. George and Jim, thank you very much. Sajid Javid is back. The former Chancellor and Home Secretary, who's also led the Departments for Business, Culture and Local Government, was parachuted into the Department for Health last weekend after Matt Hancock's enforced resignation over an affair with his aide breaking lockdown rules. Boris Johnson has long wanted to bring Sajid Javid back into the Cabinet, but he's set to be quite a different Health Secretary to his predecessor. In his first remarks to the House of Commons in his new role, Javid made it clear he wants to see lockdown restrictions ending as soon as possible. Whilst we decided not to bring forward step four, we see no reason to go beyond the 19th of July. Because, in truth, no date we choose comes with zero risk for COVID. We know we cannot simply eliminate it. We have to learn to live with it. Sarah Neville, welcome back to the podcast. So what did you make of Sajid Javid's appointment to replace Matt Hancock? He was maybe not the most obvious choice for health secretary, and he's already made it quite clear that he views the role in a slightly different way. Well, I think perhaps one of the most fascinating things about him is that he is a former chancellor. And of course, the Treasury has long been very, very sceptical about all the billions that it has to give to the NHS. It's been very dubious for many, many years that it actually gets value for money from that spending. So the idea that now the new health secretary who's being pitched straight into a very consequential treasury spending review in the autumn is likely to come from a background which could make him take a very sceptical view of the money the NHS needs. But I think the counterweight to that is that in almost every department he's headed in the past, he has managed to get significantly enhanced settlements. So he is a doughty negotiator, but it's intriguing to have somebody who comes from a perspective that uh, could lead to him being uh, uh, slightly sceptical of the, the, the value of that spending in the National Health Service. Robert Shimsley, it's great to have you back as always. Um, I find Jared a particularly fascinating figure in Tory politics because he began um, his journey on the Thatcherite right and was a very, very early Eurosceptic in the late 80s and 1990s. And he went off to work in finance and he entered Parliament in 2010, where he was a protege of George Osborne. And he was very famously nudged by George Osborne into backing Remain, even though his political instincts may be more Brexity, but that doesn't seem to have hampered his career. And of course, he was very unceremoniously ejected from government after falling out with Dominic Cummings last year and is now back again. And he seems to have indulged in some of his more libertarian instincts so far. I think he has been on, on an interesting journey. He's probably the last surviving protege of George Osborne now. And I think he's he's been benefited by, by falling out so spectacularly with Dominic Cummings because he, he, he speaks to a different group in the party now. Um, I think he's been on a bit of a journey himself. And part of that journey has been in the departments that he's been in. He's been in departments that are 
interventionist, where you do have to spend money, where the government has to get involved and where you can see the benefits of so doing. But I do in one point agree with Sarah. I don't think he's lost his essential fiscal orthodoxy. And I think one of the things that's going to be interesting to see is whether he actually allies with Rishi Sunak rather than gets into a fight with him. Because Boris Johnson, you know, rather hopes, I think, that having someone like Sajid Javid in health will lead to a strong fighter for more health funds. And all his background suggests that he will be a strong fighter for more health funds. But I think what he will also be is someone who recognises the Sunak argument that you have to pay for this. And so therefore, what I think you might well see is the two of them working together to say, yes, we have to put more money in. And yes, we have to fund it. I do take Sarah's point, actually, though, although he's also better at talking treasury language and therefore he'll be better at seeing where the weak spots in the health case are. Sarah obviously when you before we get into the wider questions about where the health service is going next the most immediate one is about the easing of coronavirus restrictions on July the 19th and even before Javid came into the department for health it was pretty clear that the government was in a direction that all cabinet ministers I've spoken to over the past couple of weeks have said there is no plausible reason we won't go ahead with this final easing on July the 19th but it was quite striking that literally his first day walking to the department for health this week he said I want to get back to normal life as soon as possible and end these restrictions, which is just rhetorically very different from where Matt Hancock was, which was about being cautious, about saving lives. And it does suggest that within that core quad of government that makes these decisions, which is Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid and Michael Gove, the balance has definitely shifted towards uh, the lockdown doves as opposed to the hawks. Yes, absolutely. So the pro-lockdown lifting faction has obviously acquired another very powerful voice. I thought it was interesting actually this week that the prospect of a campaign of booster coronavirus shots was announced and Javid put out a statement, you know, really sort of quite bullish that this was going to be the way that we were going to allow normal life to return. So he clearly is absolutely focused in everything he does practically as well as rhetorically on ensuring that the July the 19th lifting can go ahead and that all the emphasis now is put on living with coronavirus, uh, that this is going to be something that the British state is going to have to adapt to, invest money in, but ultimately the era of lockdowns is over. And Robert, you wrote a fascinating column this week about what his relationship with Rishi Sunak is going to be like. And of course, when Sajid Javid was Chancellor, Rishi Sunak was his Chief Secretary of the Treasury. And there was a, you know, there was a, there was clearly a, a creative tension, shall we say, between the two there. And one of the reasons that Boris Johnson brought Javid back into the cabinet was concerns in his inner circle. They do need to balance out Rishi Sunak's growing power base and his respect within the party because you never want too much an obvious air apparent there. But instead of being potential foes or clashing, you've picked up a sense that it could be the opposite and the pair of them could work together with the social care crisis in mind. Yeah, I mean, look, there are two different forces at play here. The first is the need to be a good departmental minister and work with the reality on the ground. And even in, uh, and I completely agree with everything Sarah just said, but even within his general instincts, you have to work with the facts as they exist and how the health pandemic um, develops over the next few months. But I think what you also have is the fact that the two of them, that Sunak and Javid, get on. They actually like each other. And it was obvious, even after he'd ceased to be Chancellor, that Shattered Javid had quite good links into the Treasury still. 
the, the two of them don't have to fight. It's not in their interest to be fighting. It's actually much more in their interest to work together. And unless the Treasury is incredibly obstructive, which you know, history tells us it's perfectly capable of being, there is an obvious path for them to head down in which resources for health service are provided, but they are also paid for. And I think the two of them could quite easily go to Johnson and say, look, this is what we've agreed. This is what we need. This is the tax measure or this is the spending cut that we have to agree to fund this. And the truth is the country, if there's one case you can take to the country at the moment, it is the case for more spending on health. That is not a hard sell, even um, even in the current climate. So it seems to me that there is a lot of scope for them to work together and temperamentally, I think they will want to. And the final area, example of this, I think, is that while he was on the back benches, Sajid Javid was thinking about the funding of public services. And I know that he was attracted to the idea of a social care levy, a, a new tax, effectively, although very similar to income tax and national insurance, paid for by the people who are over 40. So he's already been thinking about ways you can find extra funds for health and in particular for social care. And of course, Sarah, we shouldn't forget the health service is about to go through a massive shakeup that um, following the pandemic, Matt Hancock was going to introduce these essentially rolling back the 2012 Health and Social Care Act that would put much more power for the NHS and its overall control in the Secretary of State for Health. And I think some of this was to do with the fact that Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens, who was head of NHS England, don't exactly get on. But are you getting any sense that Sajid Javid is going to go ahead with this? And we've seen that some Tory MPs are not entirely happy about it either. Well, he's certainly coming under very heavy pressure from inside the NHS to go ahead with one bit of the reforms. And that's the section which is about giving statutory weight to what are called integrated care systems, reducing pressure on the NHS in the long term, improving the health of the local population by having the NHS all parts of the NHS and local government work much more closely together. And one of the extraordinary ironies of the last few years has been that this has been happening on the ground, but in strict terms, it's been illegal. It's actually gone against the 2012 Act. And this health service reform, as you mentioned, that has been proposed would move those boundaries away, would actually make these new entities legal. And leaders of the NHS, not least Simon Stevens, who has invested an enormous amount of sort of intellectual energy and political capital, as it were, in ensuring that these integrated care systems do happen, they are desperate for this legislation to go through. And they've been telling me that there's a very, very tight timetable on this, that unless we can get at least the second reading by the summer recess, this will be delayed. Now, the other aspect that you've mentioned, Seb, is that the health secretary would have considerably more what's called powers of direction over the NHS under this legislation. And that is something that certainly the NHS is very much less keen on. And finally, Rob, I think the last immediate change that Sarah and I have also picked up on this week is the race to be the new head of NHS England, that while Matt Hancock was health secretary, the favourite was seen as Baroness Dido Harding, who was the controversial head of NHS Test and Trace. And she's been a lot of eyebrows raised about whether she would be suitable given how much Test and Trace has seemed to have struggled and questions over its effectiveness for money. But it seems as if the race has now been blown wide open. It could be a much more conventional choice, the current chief operating officer of the 
the NHS. Amanda Pritchard seems to be number 10's favourite option right now because after all this chaos, Boris Johnson just wants the Department for Health to calm down. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, to be fair, I don't know whether Dido Harding was absolutely um, the favourite or whether she was just running a very effective PR campaign for herself, but she was certainly a serious contender. I do think it's a very obvious sign of breaking with the past um, for Sajid Javid to take, to say, this is not the woman I want to pick. You know, she, she's a, had a con- controversial record as test and trace. It certainly wouldn't be called an unalloyed success. She doesn't, have, beyond that, have a very strong background in the health service. So I think it'd be very easy for him to say, no, that's not the direction I want to go. And I'm going to be looking for somebody who's going to take the health service into point. And also, frankly, somebody who's more sympathetic with him. She was a Matt Hancock figure. He might want someone who's a little bit closer. And finally, Sarah, just where we're at with coronavirus and vaccinations at the moment. Um, is Are you picking up any sense that things could speed up a bit? Because we've got the, the numbers of people getting vaccinated in the UK every day have dropped quite significantly over the past couple of weeks. And, we you know, we're sort of digging around to see what's going on here. But it's obviously huge pressure to get as much of the adult population double vaccinated as possible. And you can imagine that one of the things Sajid Javid is doing is trying to keep his foot to the accelerator on that to make sure that as many people are double jabbed by July the 19th because that is absolutely crucial for making sure we don't have a very problematic third wave that overwhelms the health service. Absolutely. And I think one of the problems is the decision that under 40s could only receive either Pfizer or Moderna, that they couldn't receive the AstraZeneca vaccine because we have plentiful AstraZeneca, but we have lower supplies of the other two vaccines. I think the other point is that there is appearing to be still not desperately high levels of take up amongst some of the over 40s. I don't think those rates are at all where we would like them to be at the moment, particularly if we focus on that fabled notion of herd immunity. And I think there are still, you know, I I constantly hear from public health people on the ground who I speak to that there are still issues about hard to reach communities who are not coming forward for this vaccine. And I think that is a, a, a an issue that the initial very high take up, particularly in the over 60s, has somewhat masked until now, but which will become increasingly important. Well, Sir and Robert, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and on your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive ratings and nice reviews. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Sean McGarrity. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.